Yoga does not entail any specific position, liberal or conservative, in debates about, you know, what it's called the culture wars, you know, about sexuality, about euthanasia, about abortion, and so on. Uh, you know, there too, you, you find yoga masters who somehow at some point end up in one camp or in the other. You shouldn't try to box in yoga and enlightenment into certain political or ideological views. <clears throat> you see, uh, to say that a yoga must necessarily be conservative, or conversely, that a yogi should necessarily be liberal, that is absolutely, well, reprehensible. This idea that you can combine yoga with being in the world that has also been there since the beginning. And a very famous locus of this idea is the Bhagavad Gita. You see where uh, Krishna is explaining to Arjuna to do his duty. And his duty being a Kshatriya is to wage war, to take part in the battle. My name is Koenraad Elst. I am from uh, Belgium, Chota uh, Desh, England or Germany, Kebichme. Right, uh, for those who don't know any geography among us. Um, so, uh, I have degrees in philosophy and in both the Chinese and the Indian sections of uh, what is called uh, officially Oriental Philology and History, okay? Uh, so, so I know a bit about India, not as much as you people do, but in a few specific areas, of course, I, I studied a bit like uh, the uh, ancient history with the question of the Aryan invasion debate and then uh, other topics in history. For the more recent history, the Ayodhya event and similar um, similar controversies about places of worship. And then for the modern history, you see the ideological development around the different Hindu reform movements. And so that's what I know a few things about. And then uh, the comparative dimension where you see to evaluate Hinduism as such, and also the, the specifically the reform movements in the modern age, it is very useful, I find, to make uh, comparisons with uh, similar phenomena elsewhere. So, uh, I um, have uh, chosen the title Yoga versus Politics. Why? Well, you see, I wasn't thinking about that at all until in some, some internet discussion um, people talked about uh, the status of homosexuality in Hindu Dharma. And Baba Ramdev had given a typical classical view, one that wouldn't stand out in America among Christians. Uh, would be fairly typically their view, namely that, uh, yeah, he would tolerate it, but that it's abnormal, okay? Then uh, there were some other views 
like most competently by Professor Bharat Gupt, who shows that in uh, ancient India, in the Shastras, this was perfectly tolerated, but not equal. Like there was no, you know, what now in America they call gay marriage. There were no adoption rights uh, for gay couples or so. So it's not that it was all the same and that the modern demand for total perfect equality was there. But what was there was pluralism and therefore acceptance of the existence of different sexualities as of different lifestyles in other respects also. Now, my attention was drawn by an intervention in that discussion uh, by someone who objected to Baba Ramdev's conservative position. And he said, Abad Baba Ramdev, you see, he's, a, he's an interesting yogi, but nevertheless, he's not enlightened because of his position in this debate. Now, you see, I've, I've known personally several people who passed as enlightened, liberated, and so uh, there too, I wouldn't judge that. I wouldn't say that this is true or not. Um, in fact, it, it principally makes me wonder about the definition at all of such a concept of enlightenment. But, uh, and you know, they were charismatic and they were impressive and so on. But I wouldn't dare to make a judgment, this person is enlightened or this person is not enlightened. And if I would want to find out, I would not ask for his political opinions. Because this much I already have learned from observing advanced yogis, including Baba Ramdev, that most of these yogis are in terms of political opinions, in terms of lifestyle, almost indistinguishable from the circle that they come from. If it is some Bengali Bhadra Lok with his typical prejudices and attitudes and so on, you will find him back in that, that, that advanced yogi. And if it is some, some, some Dalit or something, again, you will find the same attitudes, the same political opinions that by now have more or less conquered that, that, that circle, and so on. And, but the difference perhaps is that this is not very important in their lives. You see, and, and in fact, that is the main difference. You see, people who care about yoga, they care less about other, other things. And so, uh, so those opinions may be there, but they have other things to do than to entertain those opinions, to discuss those opinions. And so what is special about them is precisely that they try to get out of this world of, of ordinary human thinking, including forming opinions. Right? But I find that this, uh, this attempt to drag yoga into ordinary political ideological discussions is quite prevalent. Like, for instance, I know in, in San Francisco last year or two years ago, there was some conference about yoga and race, or yoga and racism, where the uh, usual uh, liberal positions were taken. 
No, and 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 so this this person that I just quoted, with this uh, his opposition to Baba Ramdev, had the, the same attitude of saying, yeah, but you can't be a real yoga yogi, you can't be enlightened, whatever, if you take conservative opinions. Of course, a real yogi must be a liberal. Uh, it reminds me of the same phenomenon among conservatives uh, maybe 50 years ago or so during the Cold War Christians would say well you can't be a real Christian if you have any any tolerance for communism you see if you take Christianity serious well automatically you must be an anti-communist which perhaps even is better defensible because Christianity itself is an opinion and therefore can be situated in the opinion landscape and has certain implications for what your opinion will be about major challenges such as, such as communism. But you see, at heart, and especially in the case of yoga, <coughs> you know, the correct attitude is simply to take a distance, to, 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 to distinguish between these two fields, and to say, well, no, yoga does not entail any specific position, liberal or conservative, in debates about, you know, what it's called the culture wars, you know, about sexuality, about euthanasia, about abortion, and so on. Uh, you know, there too, you, you find yoga masters who somehow at some point end up in one camp or in the other. Like, for example, be, coming from a Catholic background myself, um, where uh, abortion is a very uh, serious issue, uh, where traditionally you're supposed to be against it, I was surprised and a little bit shocked when I read a quote by uh, Swami Yogananda, the one of the autobiography, that abortion is not really a big issue because, you see, if a soul can't get into this particular body, well, it goes somewhere else. It can wait for some time until some other woman gets pregnant and slip into that fetus and get born there. <laughs> because, of course, the reincarnation perspective changes everything. In Christianity, life and death is a really important problem. In fact, because of the sin of Adam and Eve, they became mortal. And what is the solution, what is the resurrection, is to become immortal again. Okay, so in Christianity, death is the problem. And immortality is the solution. Whereas in Hinduism, and even more so in, in Buddhism, the attitude is, well, Death is, is just a phase, and life is a given. You see, you automatically get reborn. Well, you know, whether you want or not, you get reborn anyway. You may try to jump off the wheel of reincarnations, but you can't unless you, you know, become a yogi. Uh, but so there, death is not a problem. And therefore, well, I can imagine an enlightened yogi, I'm not saying that Yogananda was that, but very many people believe so, 
that even an enlightened yogi says, well, abortion is, you know, I won't militate against it. And so there are issues like that. And, and, you know, you can discuss those issues. I think that here and there, they may be consequential. Like, for instance, in the West, there has recently been some commotion <clears throat> about the issue of euthanasia, you know, assisted death. And um, in my country, as well as in Holland, uh, there, um, there has now been an increasing acceptance of euthanasia. It has been legalized in a few countries. And it's, it's coming up. It's like an inevitable, I think, wave of the future. Uh, that springs from yet another attitude to death, namely that death is inevitable. You know, there's no afterlife coming like for Christians and there's no reincarnation coming like for Hindus. No, at death it's over. So recently a great uh, Belgian intellectual died, Etienne Vermeers, who had long campaigned for free euthanasia. Then the law was changed, it became legal, and now he died by committing euthanasia. Okay. Now, he, uh, he was asked, aren't you afraid of dying? And so his position is strictly atheist. When we die, it's over. In fact, he, uh, he planned to put on his grave. In fact, I think he was cremated. But you see, what he thought was a good epitaph was uh, some Latin phrase, which I will translate. Uh, four lines, very short ones. I didn't exist. I existed. I no longer exist. I don't care. <laughs> see, now you see, that, that I think to Hindus must be a very foreign world, a very strange way of looking at it that is just over that there's nothing anymore and so people ask him but aren't you afraid of death of like just disappearing and he said yeah but not being there doesn't hurt <laughs> so yeah so that's a that's a, a different way of looking at it but from which follows that you should take a rational attitude to death it's no use prolonging your suffering and so on if you feel you have to go then you go and so in Christianity, you have a different attitude that people have no right to decide over life and death. Only God has that right. And therefore, even if you're suffering and so on, you just have to wait until God decides to let you go or to take your soul to himself, as Christians say. Uh, in India, this became uh, a very live issue in recent years when um, the Supreme Court had to sit in judgment on the application of a law that exists since the British period, namely that forbids any form of self-chosen death. Now, there are, in fact, there have been two controversies over British laws, one over a law prohibiting homosexuality. That has been like discarded by the Supreme Court. And rightfully so, because the British thought correctly, this law doesn't exist among Hindus. Hindus allow all kinds of sexual strange things. And it's, we need to step in out of our 
Christian responsibility to impose Christian morality. Again, in the issue of euthanasia too, you see these Hindus, they think nothing of like fasting themselves to death. It's a very common practice. Like Vir Savarkar did so, like we know Abhave did so. And so many, particularly among giants, you know, monks and so on, they do this when they feel their time is up. They keep the honor to themselves and they fast themselves to death. Now, when Vinoba Bhave lay dying, he was visited by the then Prime Minister Indira Gandhi. And at that time, there were editorials by secularist editors saying, he shouldn't be visited by the Prime Minister. On the contrary, he should be in prison. He was trespassing against the law of the land by fasting unto death. He should be force-fed. Now, okay, the law of the land was there, but it was enacted specifically from a Christian viewpoint by the colonizers. Isn't it then normal that this law is being questioned? Um, so now, fortunately, some giants, you see, who had this case of someone fasting unto death that, you see, some people wanted to prevent, went again to the Supreme Court. And finally, you know, their so far final judgment was that, yes, you see, this should be allowed. This law should be made dysfunctional. You know, I mean, the court can't suppress a law, can't abolish a law. Only Parliament can that, but they can make sure that this law is no longer applied. So you see, that is that is what they should have done. That's what they did. So in that respect, it's not the Hindu government that did anything, but the court and you know the, the social reality has simply led to a certain <coughs> uh, Hinduization of uh, life in these two respects. You see the control over your own death, that is now accepted. The, um, <clears throat> the more uh, relaxed morality, typical of Hinduism, where you never stoned people, you know, where you never put them in prison, <coughs> like, like happened to uh, famous cases like Alan Turing or Oscar Wilde. Um, no, you see, where you just left them to do their own thing. Uh, without necessarily accepting them as fully equal. You know, that, may, that may be a modern revendication, but <clears throat> at least you see it is more a Hindu attitude of being pluralistic and tolerant in these regards. So that has, that has recently been achieved. Now, here again, you see, if you bring in the yogis, well, I have a feeling that they are closer in this case to the Hindu reality than to the Christian-inspired laws that have effectively been put out of use. <coughs> now, um, so what I've said so far is that you shouldn't try to box in yoga and enlightenment into certain political or ideological views. <coughs> You see, uh, to say that a yoga must necessarily be conservative, or conversely, that a yogi should necessarily be liberal, that is absolutely, well, reprehensible. I wouldn't take, say it so seriously, but you see, it's like 
it's misconceived. I see yoga is something beyond these ordinary quarrels. And so it should be judged in different terms. Nevertheless, nevertheless, yoga does have a certain, uh, a certain impact on politics. And here um, we should study a very, very rare phenomenon, namely that of people who take yoga seriously and yet are present in the world, for example, as political leaders. <clears throat> this is very rare, has always been. In fact, in, um, in Hindu civilization, the attitude towards doing different things is one of specialization. You see, in, in the West, you have this culture of do it yourself. Especially in America, for instance, every man is supposed to be able to repair his own car. In India, nobody even cuts his own uh, lawn. Because if you have any kind of normal income, you have enough to pay a gardener, to pay a kitchen maid, and so on. Okay? So there is a very strong specialization. In the West, you see, there are all these ladies who are bored and they take guitar lessons. Now, in India, either you are a musician or you are not. And you see, it's silly to be something else and then, and then do a little bit of music. No, you see, this is useless. I mean, how could you compete ever with the professionals? So either you are a professional or you stay away from it. Now, that attitude has also been there regarding yoga. You see, in the West nowadays, there is a lot of uh, advertisement of... Uh, you can just be a householder, uh, a man of the world, and also be a yogi. Uh, in India, I don't know, that's, that's fairly untraditional. You see, either you are a yogi or you are not. And doing yoga for, for most people is a full-time occupation. So, this Western attitude leads, according to the traditional Hindu viewpoint, leads to playing around, you see, acting like a yogi and dressing like a yogi, but whatever you do, it's not the real thing. Well, uh, maybe. On the other hand, uh, this idea that you can combine yoga with being in the world that has also been there since the beginning. And a very famous locus of this idea is the Bhagavad Gita. You see where uh, Krishna is explaining to Arjuna to do his duty. And his duty being a Kshatriya is to wage war, to take part in the battle. In fact, I've been to that battlefield. See, I mean, I've been to India for so long. And, you know, from Delhi, it's so easy to take a day trip to Kurukshetra. It's like just nearby. And I had never done this. And so last year, for the very first time, I went to Kurukshetra. I went to, what is it, Pihova, some, some pilgrimage place on the Saraswati, just there also. But that battlefield, 
I mean, really, when I went there, it has such a tremendous energy. It felt so good, so right. And I personally am not drawn very much to the Bhagavad Gita and to the Krishna cult and so on. Nevertheless, there I was just so impressed. Um, anyway, so that's where um, Krishna gave this lecture to uh, Arjuna and in fact spoke about yoga, said to Arjuna, oh Arjuna, become a yogi, and at the same time said to Arjuna, and now you do your worldly duty. You go to this battlefield, which is not exactly a yogic place. You do the killing and the bleeding and everything. Because that's your duty. So maybe it's not so Hindu after all. Or so un-Hindu after all. Um, let's um, go to another country where there is some experience with this. It is China. In India, of course, everybody knows that Buddhism went to China. And so since 2000 years, you have Buddhist monasteries in China. Where again, you have people who are full-time meditators, also copiers of Buddhist scripture and so on, doing Buddhist things, being dressed as a Buddhist, not being married in order to devote more time to their Buddhist practice. Now, the indigenous Chinese culture had always found this a bit strange. You see, the Confucians, they thought that Buddhism was a superstition. This had, of course, also to do with the beliefs of Buddhism, namely reincarnation. You see, in China, you also had some beliefs about an afterlife, but you had also the attitude of, you know, when we die, it's over. At any rate, this reincarnation thing, that was a bit bizarre. Just like in the modern West, you see now it is gaining ground, but it is still looked upon as a somewhat funny doctrine. Like in the Roman Empire, it was also the same. They had these stories about, uh, I think it's Aeneas, one of their heroes, you see, he goes to the underworld where he meets people that he knows and who have died. Uh, and then he, is, he gets the explanation. You see, after your death, when you come in the underworld, three things can happen. You see, either you are totally miserable and have lived a terrible life and so on. And then you go to the Tartaros, to, you know, uh, to hell, essentially. And you disappear. World of shadows. And either you are a great hero, very meritorious and so on, and then you go to the Elysian fields, you know, to heaven, and that's where you stay. But most people, you see, they go into the river of forgetfulness. They take a dip in that river so that they forget their past life, and they go back to the world. They get reborn, and the whole cycle starts again. Now, that was their literature, but in actual practice, they still found this belief very strange. And so there are a few Roman writers who report that the Gauls, the Celts, they really believed in reincarnation. And, you know, it had some very funny consequences. Well, funny or at any rate, real life consequences that were notable. 
that made them very heroic in the battlefield. Because after all, if you know you're going to be reborn, then it doesn't matter if you die, because you're going to come back again. It also doesn't matter if you kill, because the other guy is also going to come back again. So you, you have no fear and you have no scruples. So you fight a lot better. Um, in fact, that is exactly why uh, Krishna brings in do that doctrine when he's talking to Arjuna. He says to Arjuna, why are you so worried about this battle? What is, so, what is such a big deal about fighting? You see, if you die, well, you come back. It's like taking off your coat and putting it on tomorrow. Uh, and, and if you have to kill someone, again, he is in the same situation, you know. You're pulling his coat from him and tomorrow he puts on another coat. And so what's the big deal? Okay. So that, that is one attitude. But you see, still the Romans, you know, they knew about it, but it was a bit uneasy. And so the same thing with the Chinese. They thought that this Buddhism was, well, was bizarre and was foreign. That, of course, also helped. But they mainly thought their main objection to Buddhism was, well, this is irresponsible. You see, you have a certain social duty. And even the Buddhist monks, you see, they, they eat food that somebody has grown, somebody has prepared. They live in houses that, or, you know, buildings that someone has built. So they themselves don't want to contribute to a world that they live in, that they profit from. In fact, the same attitude existed in the Vedas. You have a duty towards your parents, uh, namely of continuing their work, the world they built, including continuing the life they gave you by continuing to giving that life to yet the next generation. So, you see, both economically and even biologically, Buddhist monks are parasites. That's, that is like the critique. Um, now, nevertheless, you see, the different religions in China coexisted. But in the 11th, 12th century, there was a movement called Neo-Confucianism, which was a fusion of the dominant uh, ideology, Confucianism, with Taoism, which is a more mystical tradition in China, and with Buddhism. Now, what they took from Buddhism was precisely the element of meditation. They thought that, well, you know, whatever their funny beliefs, at any rate, their practice of meditation, that makes good sense. You see, of course, it is ridiculous to spend your days meditating and leaving everything else undone. No, you see, you should participate in the world, you should do your duty. But every morning, sitting down for an hour to concentrate, that's good. To tune your instrument, to make you better able to do your job. In fact, that is precisely the reason for most yoga practitioners in the West to do what they do. That and a secondary one, which is yeah, also tuning your instrument, but in a, in, in a health uh, sense. Like uh, there is a famous atheist philosopher, Daniel Dennett, a psychologist, 
And so, so he argues that religion is nonsense and that God does not exist and so on. And in those circles, there is also a great skepticism regarding meditation. Now, he was in uh, the town where I now live, Antwerp, and so he was giving this talk, and then it was question time, and I asked him, you know, what do you think about meditation? And I thought he was going to, like, ridicule it or something. No, you see, he said, yes, I practice meditation. And he explained which technique he did and so on. And he said, but I don't attach any metaphysical meaning to this. I only do it against my high blood pressure. Yeah, well, that's, that's the reason why people do yoga, you know. Um, or to become more attractive. In fact, in one of the Hatha Yoga classics, in India, already 500 years ago, you see, before you had this uh, American uh, calisthenics, uh, this American beauty cult of Hollywood and so on, long ago in India, it is said in, I think, the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, at any rate, one of the yoga, Hatha Yoga classics, it is said, you know, if you do yoga, you get a very lustrous body and you become irresistible to the opposite sex. You know that again is an extremely popular reason why people do yoga. Okay? So it has certain worldly benefits. So, you see, the, the neo-confusion attitude was, you see, you shouldn't take yoga too, too seriously. You shouldn't hang your whole life on it. But it has certain uses. And so to that extent, within measure, you know, you should use it. And so that attitude still exists, and so now in the West it is very much there. In India, by contrast, well, I'm not so sure. Um, a friend of mine, a, a yoga teacher, was giving this lecture, and, you know, in question time he got the question that in such situation in the West you always get every time, namely, ah, but is yoga fit for Western men? Is it not something typically oriental, something that you should have a certain lifestyle for and so on that is not fit for the dynamic uh, Westerner? And he answered, well, I think there is far more practice of meditation in the West than in India. I don't know how Hindus feel about this. I mean, I don't know, maybe you are all crypto muftis and crypto imams or so, but I, I think most people here are Hindus. Um, so what would you say about it? Is this correct? The West, like, recording permission, yes. Mm -hmm. Many Hindus do do it without considering it as meditation, they're praying. Yeah, right. You see, my first impression in this regard uh, especially, you see, I started getting to know the Hindu world more or less from the inside during this whole Ayodhya controversy. And so, for example, I went several times to the Vishwa Hindu Parishad office where they have a number of ordained monks, you see, working. And I thought, you see, the atmosphere there is so noisy. <laughs> you know, one of the things I knew at the time about meditation, 
was Zen Buddhism, which is a Japanese version of Buddhism, where they practice like one technique from the beginning to the end. You know, you, you're, when you're introduced, you know, you're being taught one technique, which is very simple. It is, it is a variation on what in, in, in these Vipassana courses they call uh, Anapanasati, um, Anapanasmrti in Sanskrit. So remembering your in and out breathing, which means to say to pay attention to simply the process of breathing. In, in India, you're supposed to feel the breath coming in and going out. Uh, in China and Japan, there is a Taoist influence which works with energy centers. And so they're conscious of the energy center below the navel. So you're supposed to, you know, watch your breath going to that point and from that point going out again. Okay? But so it's nothing else. Nothing else. So you're, you're supposed to watch yourself. And so while you're concentrating on the breath, you know, your thoughts are either there or somewhere else. And sometimes you catch yourself, oh my God, the last five minutes I've been thinking about how I should have said this when he insulted me that, you know, and, or, you know, I was making my plans for what to do tomorrow on the job or something. And then you go back to, oh yeah, emptiness, yeah, emptiness. And, and so, you know, you can, you can fill your life with that, you know. So that, that's already a, a very good technique. But anyway, the important point I'm making now is this is a quiet technique. You see, at the end, after meditation, there is a little singing. They sing some Japanese version of the, uh, the Heart Sutra, the Prajna Paramita um, Hardaya Sutra, I think. And, uh, but the meditation itself is just totally silent. Now, in India, I don't know, maybe in some of these ashrams in Rishikesh you find that. But in very many, even there you don't find it. And so, so that was my first impression. Oh my God, you see, when, when do they get silent? You know? That's, for example, why some critical Hindus like mosques. See, in mosques also they don't do yoga. But at least when it's silent, it's silent. You see, sometimes they do azan and stuff. That's, that's more noisy. But when it's silent, it's silent. And also visually, it's like white walls. You see, like you see the, the, the visual noisiness of Hindu temples with all kinds of idols and sculptures and so on is like replicated in the auditory sense by all kinds of bhajans going on and bells wrinkling and so on. Now, of course, you see, a Hindu who knows his stuff will say, yeah, but this is not meditation. You know, nobody expects that. This is a ritual. And that is noisy. And when it's time for meditation, we do that and we stop the noise. Okay. Nevertheless, experience teaches that people who do meditation, but who also do certain rituals and so on, after a while do less and less meditation and more and more of the rest. Because there is a certain inertia mechanism in most people, so that um, the the effort that you have to put in meditation, well, that's not kept up. You know, unless you are regularly stimulated to do that, then it weakens. And so, 
after 5,000 years, you've really had enough opportunity to let the effort weaken. And so in that sense, you could say, well, yeah, there's not enough of it in India. But you see, that is a very provisional opinion. That is an impression that others from the West also have had. That's an impression that I also get. Uh, and so most of the people I know, I mean, I know very many people in the publishing sector, for instance, in the media. I don't know too many there who do yoga. There are some, but uh, then again, in the West, I have to say the same thing. You see, people who have time, like housewives, that's where you find many people really practicing Hatha Yoga, principally. Um, but uh, again, you see, there also you find the mechanism that Hindu tradition has very correctly diagnosed, that people who have another focus, who have a specific job as a, as a TV star or as a politician or whatever, can only devote so much time to spiritual pursuits. And so there you find the wisdom of Hindu tradition that says, either you do it or you don't. But you see, in the modern age where everybody wants to pursue everything and nobody wants to miss anything, I think that there is a value in tailoring meditation practice in such a way that it is sustainable even in a busy life. That, you know, it is feasible to every morning sit down for one hour and maybe in the evening for another half hour uh, to get some of the benefits of yoga. Now, whether you reach enlightenment, that is again something else. But there we have the problem that we don't even know is there, if there is any such a thing as enlightenment. You see, I discuss these things a lot with people from Vedanta societies and so on. And I get all kinds of viewpoints about it. Same thing in, among Chinese Buddhists or Japan or so. You know, in that respect, <coughs> India is, is not exceptional. Or there are many views on what this is. What is the goal of yoga? What is enlightenment? Is there such a thing as enlightenment? You know, do we need such a thing as enlightenment? So that is a, yeah, that's a big issue that we can discuss. Uh, but so, you see, some people pursue even that only one or two hours a day. They don't think that anything more is needed. And others say, well, you should just forget about this. Essentially, we are enlightened all the time. As long as our consciousness works, consciousness means enlightenment. And so in the back of our minds, we are enlightened all the time. Only most of the time we forget because our mind is on other things. <laughs>